0: You know, when I, when I was a kid, um, my favorite, absolute favorite part about Easter as a kid was the Easter egg hunt. I loved a good Easter egg hunt. Do I have anybody with me? Love a good Easter egg hunt? So I remember this one year, I was probably, I don't know, nine, ten years old, and my family, we went over to a friend's house for Easter, kind of late lunch, early dinner, and um, when, when dinner was over... We went to the backyard where they had prepared this massive Easter egg hunt. All over the, the, the yard, dozens of eggs out there. And there were like, I don't know, six or seven kids. But I was the oldest one and the biggest one. I was like 10 years old. The rest were like four to, to seven years old. And I'm sizing up my competition. And I'm like, I've got this. No problem at all. And they say, they say go. They tell us to, to take off. You can go look for the eggs. And I just bolt out of there. I'm, like, stiff-arming kids out of the way, and any eggs I can find, I'm going and grabbing. Obviously, since I'm the oldest, they had some eggs, like, hidden in the trees and behind the bushes, kind of difficult, so I'm grabbing those eggs, but then, you know, the eggs that they put out for, like, the toddlers that are, like, right there in the grass, like, that nobody would be able to miss? I'm going, and I'm grabbing those, too, and I'm just loading up my, my basket. I'm feeling like a champ, and, and we find all the eggs, and we go back on the, the back porch, And 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 my basket is just like overflowing with Easter eggs. And I'm I'm feeling real good about myself. And I'm looking around at these other kids and and my sister, and they've got like three or four eggs, they can hold them in in both their hands. And my parents are looking at me like, what's wrong with you? Like, look at these kids. What what is wrong with you? And they're like, you need to divide up your eggs. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, is this encouraging sports? I need to share. When I won, I don't, I don't think so. They're like, no, you need to divide up your eggs. So reluctantly, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll split up some of my eggs. But before I'm just handing over my eggs to these other kids, I had a little bit of a, a strategy. Went over in the corner and started to take the eggs, and I would, would shake them, try to figure out what, what's in it. You know, I, I'd shake it, and I'd hear some coins. I'm like, those are some big coins. I think I might have some, some quarters there. I'm going to keep that shake it and be like oh I think that's a, a big piece of chocolate that's a Reese's that's a Kit Kat I'm gonna hold on to that shake it oh those are jelly beans they can ha- definitely have those and then I remember I get to this one egg and I shake it and I didn't hear anything so I, I, I shake it again and still don't hear anything and I'm like my, my sister can have that one um, so I, I hand those eggs to her and we kind of divide them up and we start opening up our, our Easter eggs and I'm I'm tearing through mine. I've got some, some Reese's, some Kit Kats. I've probably got 3 or $4 worth of quarters. I'm feeling pretty good. And, and I see my sister, she's starting to open up her eggs, and she gets to the, to the one egg that I know is empty. And I'm, I'm sitting there kind of smirking, smiling. You know, nobody's figured out what I've done. She opens up this egg, and there's a $20 bill in this egg. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I had that egg, and I only gave it to her because I thought there was nothing in that. And then, of course, I look terrible. My parents are like, hey, you learned a valuable lesson about being greedy. And my sister leaves with the $20. But let me tell you, out of all the Easter egg hunts that I've done over the years, that is the one that sticks out to me the most. You know, we're just a few weeks from from Easter now, and, and whether somebody is a Christian or not, I think most people love Easter, They love the Easter egg hunts. They love the Easter baskets they get from mom and dad. How many of you still get an Easter basket every year? College leaders, go ahead and raise your hands. I know you're still getting your Easter baskets too. We love the candy. We love the chocolate bunnies. We love the peeps. We love the honey baked ham. Anybody a fan of the the honey baked ham? Honey baked ham and, and the sides. You get to spend time with your friends and family. You normally get a day off of school on Friday or Monday. The NCAA March Madness tournament's still going on during Easter week. Like, it's just a really good time. People love Easter weekend. But here's what I'm afraid happens. I think if we're not careful, we overlook the significance and the importance of Easter. And Easter just becomes another holiday that we celebrate, the way that we would celebrate Fourth of July, the way that we would celebrate Thanksgiving. But here's what we need to understand. As followers of Jesus, as believers, as Christians, our entire faith, everything we believe, it hangs on the reality and the truthfulness of Easter weekend. It rises and falls based on the the events of Easter weekend, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, meaning that without Easter weekend, without the truthfulness of the events that happen on Easter weekend, our faith as Christians is completely meaningless. It has absolutely no value if Easter weekend isn't true. In fact, the apostle Paul said this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what Paul said about this. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if there's no Easter Sunday, if there's no resurrection, he says, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul says that for us as believers, our entire faith is wrapped up in the truth of Easter week and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So over the next four weeks, my goal as we begin this new series is for us to begin to prepare ourselves for Easter, to begin to set our heart and our minds on this weekend that has incredible significance, a weekend that is incredibly relevant for our lives today. We celebrate an event that occurred 2,000 years ago, but that event still has relevance in our life today. So in order to do that, to begin to set our hearts and our minds towards Easter weekend, over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through the final moments of Jesus' life, the final events leading up to his crucifixion. And tonight, to kind of begin the series, we're going to talk about what's often referred to as the Last Supper, You know, in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are kind of biographies of Jesus' life. All four gospel accounts talk about this event known as the Last Supper. And this was Jesus' final meal that he shared with his disciples. It likely occurred, scholars suspect, on the Thursday night leading into Easter weekend. So the, the night before Jesus was crucified, him and his disciples gathered together for what would be their final time together. And you see, several days before Easter weekend, Jesus and his 12 disciples, his closest friends, they traveled to Jerusalem. And when they arrived in the city, they were welcomed by this massive parade. Like people were there because they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to cheer for him, they wanted to celebrate. They were so excited to believe Jesus because the Jewish people were convinced this guy is our savior. This guy is our Messiah. This guy is our king. And they believed that Jesus was gonna set himself up as king on earth and that he was gonna overthrow the Roman Empire that had oppressed them for generations and that he was gonna restore Israel to its place of power and prominence. They were convinced, this is our guy. This is the guy that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, our savior, our king, our Messiah. But Jesus knew that he was not there to be celebrated. That he wasn't there to be crowned king, that he wasn't there to to set up a kingdom or to overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus knew that he had come to Jerusalem for one single purpose. And that purpose was to lay down his life on the cross. Jesus was there to die. And this had been his purpose, this had been his mission his entire life. And with this reality quickly approaching, being just days away from the crucifixion, Jesus knows what's coming. He began to prepare his disciples for what was going to happen. Because in just a matter of days, their world would be turned upside down. Nothing would ever be the same. And these final days, these final hours with his disciples took on even greater importance and significance. And Jesus knew that as he gathered with his disciples on that Thursday night, for the one last time, for one final meal together, this was going to be his last chance to share some of his final words, his final instructions, his final lessons with them. And in Matthew chapter 26, starting in in verse 17, it says this. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to go and eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near.'" I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. You See, Jesus was determined to spend the Passover with his disciples before he was crucified. And if you're unfamiliar with what the Passover is, the Passover is this Jewish holiday where they look back and remember when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery. In fact, we read about the first Passover all the way back in the book of Exodus, when God rescued his people from Egypt by sending these 10 plagues against the Egyptians. And the final plague that God sent against the Egyptians was he was going to kill the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But God told his people, if you will take the blood of a perfect spotless lamb, if you will shed its blood, and take his blood, and wipe it across your doorpost, doorpost your doorframe, then when I send my angel to kill the firstborn of every family, that angel will pass over your home, and you will be spared. That was the first Passover. So every year since then, the Jewish people have celebrated the Passover. And they would celebrate the Passover with what was called a Seder, And a Seder was kind of this this fancy meal that consisted of all these weird different foods. And all the foods symbolized something from their rescue from Egypt. All of them had importance and meaning. And there were hours of preparation that would go into the Seder. I want you to think about like Thanksgiving how it's like a week-long thing, you and your family are are thinking through the the turkey and the ham and the sides and the, the desserts, like there was significant preparation that went into the Seder. And Jesus, he's sending his disciples ahead of him saying, hey, do what you need to, prepare this Passover Seder because we're gonna celebrate it together. And then verse 20, it says this, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. See, the Passover Seder, it always took place after sunset, so it's evening time. Jesus and his 12 closest friends, these guys he spent the last three years living life with, they're gathered around this table, and all the disciples, they're thinking, hey, we're just celebrating Passover, this is something we've been doing every year since we were, we were kids. There's nothing special about this, nothing that's different. This is just what we do. But they began to notice, man, something is off with Jesus tonight. Something isn't quite right. Jesus seems more, more somber, more, more serious than he, he normally would. And as they're enjoying the Seder, as they're spending time together, in the middle of dinner, Jesus drops this bomb on them. Listen to what he says in verse, verse 21. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One of you in this room is gonna stab me in the back. One of you is going to, to betray me. And instantly, the entire mood of the night changed. It's like, have you ever like met up with a friend to hang out or, or met up with a friend for, for dinner, and you sit down and they start the conversation with, hey, there's something we really need to talk about. Like, if, if somebody starts the conversation that way, it's not gonna be good. Like, the, the, the whole night's going downhill after that. Jesus drops this bomb on them. One of you is gonna betray me, and immediately everybody starts getting nervous and anxious. They're wondering, what, what is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Who's going to betray him? And listen to how they respond, verse 22. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. All the disciples, they begin to get defensive. Jesus, you're you're, you're not talking about me. Jesus, I would would never betray you. I would go with you to to the death. I would never leave you. And I'm sure in their minds, they're beginning to to think and to speculate. I I wonder who it is. Is is it Peter? Is it John? Is Is it Matthew? Is it Judas? Like who is it that's going to betray Jesus? They're trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about? Who is about to stab our leader in the back? Who is about to turn on him? And listen to how Jesus replies in verse 23. The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas the one who would betray him said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. Now, this passage doesn't tell us exactly how this went down, but I can't imagine because Judas already knows what, what he's done. He's already cut a deal to turn Jesus in. I can't imagine he's just sitting there at the table and across from the table, he's like, Jesus, you're not, you're not talking about me. And for Jesus to respond, well, you, you've said it, because obviously all the guys are just gonna like turn on him there. I imagine they're probably sitting next to each other at dinner and Judas is trying to, to kind of cover up what he's about to do. And he, he whispers to Jesus like, you, you know it's not me, right? And Jesus looks at him like, come on, buddy. Like we, we both know what kind of deal you've made. We both know what you're getting ready to do. So Jesus drops this this bomb during the Passover Seder with his closest friends, and and I can just imagine the, the rest of the meal, it just took on a very different tone. I'd imagine it was probably pretty awkward in there, a little uncomfortable, like nobody's really talking, nobody's making eye contact, nobody's joking around, nobody's laughing, everyone's just nervous and anxious about what Jesus has just told them. That's all they're thinking about in their mind. Who is going to betray him? What is about to happen? But Jesus, he continues on with the Seder. He continues on with the Passover. And here's what you need to understand. This this Passover Seder, it was a very structured and organized meal. Like this isn't like your your family dinner at Thanksgiving where you, you get your plate, you go through the line, you load it up, you sit down and you just start eating. This was very structured and formal. You didn't just get your food and start eating it. You ate certain foods at certain times. And before you would eat certain foods, there would be a a blessing or a prayer that was recited. It was this very formal process. And during this Seder, they would always eat unleavened bread. Now I don't know if you've ever seen this before or had this before, it's not not very good. This is bread that is made without yeast, meaning it doesn't rise. And the reason they would eat this is because it's symbolized and pointed back to the original Passover. And the the Israelites, when they were looking to escape from Egypt, God told them, you don't have time to sit around and wait for your your bread to bake, for your bread to rise. You need to eat it without yeast so that as soon as I come through and wipe out the firstborns, you are ready to go. You are ready to leave. So Jesus, he he took the the piece of bread. It was a customary part of the Seder and he, he, he prayed a blessing over it. This was very normal, but then listen to what he says. While they were eating, Jesus, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. I want you to take and eat this bread because this is my body. And at this point, Jesus is going completely off script. Like He is breaking the Passover tradition, a tradition that they have been practicing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus is just going off, uh, off the rails. And, and they're sitting there wondering, like, what are you talking about? This bread is your, your body? No, no, Jesus, the, the, the reason, I, I know you know a lot about the Old Testament, but Jesus, the reason we eat this bread is because this points back to our, our ancestors, something that happened years ago. Jesus, I know you've made a lot of, like, strong claims about being God, but the Passover's not about you, buddy. Like, for you to sit here and say, like, this bread is your body, that's a little extreme. That would be like one of you making the claim, hey, Christmas is all about me. Like you know, when you read in Matthew about the the Savior, the Messiah coming, yeah, that that's talking about me. That's essentially what Jesus is doing. He's hijacking their religious ceremony, their religious holiday, and saying, It's all about me. And you you hear this when he says, This bread is my body, and you're wondering, what is he saying? What is Jesus talking about here? And what Jesus is doing in this moment with his disciples is he's introducing this brand new tradition, this brand new rite that would take place of the Passover. And today we refer to it as as communion, or we refer to it as, as the Lord's Supper. And essentially what Jesus is claiming is, hey, this Passover Seder that you've been doing for hundreds of years, it has just all been pointing to me. The Passover, that story from Exodus, it's really all about me. And this bread that is broken, that we bless, that we pray over, this bread is my body. But then Jesus gets even weirder. Listen to what he says next. He says, then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. You see, during the Passover Seder, they would drink four glasses of wine. Talk about turning up. Four glasses of wine at dinner. And this was likely the third glass of wine. It was called the the cup of blessing. And and Jesus, as normal, would take the cup. He would pray a a blessing over it. And then he made the claim, this wine, and this is not actually wine. I don't need any emails from your, your parents tomorrow. He says, this wine, this is my blood. And my blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, and I want you to drink from it. This wine is my blood and I want you to drink from it. And at this point, the disciples are like, look, this is not the Seder that we signed up for. This is getting a little weird. This is getting a little out there. Like I was okay with the whole like, you know, this, your, this bread is, is, is your body. But for you to say that this wine is your blood, Jesus, that's just a little creepy. I think you're going a little too far. So they wrap up the dinner, they, they wrap up the Seder, and, and verse 30 tells us this, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I, I can just imagine that night, the disciples are all kind of walking out of this room together, they're, they're getting ready to, to go to another part of town, they're probably giving each other looks and are just thinking like, what in the world was that? Like this guy that we've been following that that has seemed pretty normal is is telling us this bread is his body and this this wine is his, his blood. Like has he lost his mind? Maybe he got into the wine a little bit too early before dinner. Like I don't know what he's talking about. Like this is the strangest Passover Seder that we've ever been to. What in the world is Jesus talking about? But you see in just a few hours, these 12 disciples would completely understand what Jesus had been talking about. Because that night at that Seder, when Jesus talked about the bread being his body and the wine being his blood, it was simply a prediction, a a, a foreshadowing of the violent, sacrificial death that he was getting ready to experience. Students, Jesus was literally broken and poured out. Jesus on the cross had his body broken. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was pierced, his body was crushed and his blood was poured out. And these disciples, as they're leaving this dinner this this, this night, they have no idea the significance of what is about to happen in just a few hours. They have no idea that everything is getting ready to change forever. But you see, that night at the Last Supper with his disciples, what Jesus was doing was he was introducing a brand new covenant, not just to his disciples, but a brand new covenant to the world. You see in the Old Testament, we read about how God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. One of the covenants that God entered into with Israel was called the Mosaic Covenant. It was named after Israel's leader, a guy named, named Moses. And this is when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments and these laws to follow. And Here's, here's what a covenant is if you're not familiar with it. A covenant is a, an agreement. It's a, it's a deal. And this original covenant that God entered into with Israel, it was a conditional covenant. Meaning that if they held up their end of the deal, if they did their part, then God would do his part. God would hold up his end of the deal. And the deal that God made with them was, if you will follow my commands, if you will obey me, if you will follow me and serve me, then I will bless you and I will make you prosper. But as we read throughout the Old Testament, all you see is the Israelites failing miserably at this. Time and time again, they broke the covenant that God made with them. They were unable to follow God's rules and commandments. They continued to turn their back on God and disobey him. And God knew this covenant is not going to work long term. Because these people, they are unable, no matter their, their, their best effort, their best try, they are unable to keep this agreement. All this covenant did was expose how sinful and broken these people were. So what God did was he decided to enter into a new covenant with his people. A new covenant that would replace the old covenant. But this new covenant, it wasn't just for the people of Israel. It wasn't just for the Jews. This covenant would be for all people of the world. And this was not a conditional covenant, meaning it was not based on our effort, our ability, our our, 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 our aptitude, our ability to keep the rules and the commands. This covenant was based and founded on God's love and God's grace for his people. But here's what you need to understand. Here's where this all comes full circle with what Jesus is talking about. In order for a covenant to be established, blood has to be shed. In order for a covenant to begin to be ratified, blood has to be shed. And in the Old Testament, when God entered into this covenant with the people, what they did was they took an animal and they sacrificed it. They shed its blood so that they could enter into this covenant with God. And every single time they broke the covenant, every single time they fell short of God's standard, they would have to sacrifice another animal. They would have to shed more blood in order to keep that covenant, in order to keep that agreement. But God said, no longer are we doing this. We're not going to continue to shed blood and sacrifices. I am going to initiate a new covenant and there will be one Ultimate and final sacrifice. And God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my own son, Jesus, to be that sacrifice, to be that bloodshed, to pay the price of this new covenant. And listen, when you look back in the Old Testament, I know so much of the Old Testament is difficult to, to understand. But so much of the Old Testament, it points to this reality of Jesus on the cross, of Jesus coming to die. And there's one prophecy made in the book of Jeremiah, and I just want you to listen to this tonight. Look, If you've been checked out, if you've not been listening, I just want to ask you to, to pay attention for these next few minutes. Listen to what Jeremiah wrote. This is hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus came and lived. Jeremiah chapter 30, it says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It's not gonna be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. God is saying, I was faithful, I held up end of the deal, but they continued to break the covenant, but I'm making a new one that's not like that. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, hey, you need to know the Lord, you need to know God because they will all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Students, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and died and shed his blood so that you could be made right with God. So that you could enter into this new covenant with God. Jesus, he took on your your sin and your shame and your guilt. He took on the the punishment that you deserved. He took on the, 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 the death that you deserved to die so that you could have a personal relationship with God so that you could know God in a personal way, your heavenly Father, the creator of the world, so that you could have a relationship with him. And in Isaiah, this was also written hundreds of years before Jesus. Listen to what he says, Isaiah chapter 53. He's talking about Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He's talking about Jesus on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sin and our disobedience. The punishment that brought us peace with God was on him. And by his wounds, by his bloodshed, we are healed. So you may be wondering, okay, that, that, that's great, but what does that mean for me today, this, this event that occurred 2,000 years ago that we celebrate every year at Easter? Here's what this means for you today as a middle school student, as a high school student. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus was broken so that you don't have to stay broken, so that you don't have to stay in your mess. Jesus had his blood poured out so that you could be forgiven of your sin, of that thing you're ashamed of, embarrassed of. Jesus had his blood poured out so that could be wiped away and canceled. Jesus was crushed so that you can have peace with God, so that you can enter into a relationship with your Father in heaven. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if there's been a time, a moment in your life where you've said, I'm not placing my faith and myself and my ability, but I'm placing my faith and my trust in Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross, then here's what you need to understand. You are not identified or known by your shame, your sin, your guilt, or your brokenness. When God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. Jesus took care of your brokenness, your mess, the embarrassing things, the shame, the guilt. He nailed that to the cross. And this covenant, this agreement that you've made with God, it's not based on you trying to keep it. It's not based on you trying to earn it or be good enough or impress God or get God's acceptance. It's based on God's love and grace for you. And some of you, you may need to remind yourself of that tonight. You may need to remind yourself of that as we begin to to celebrate Easter. But for some of you in here, man, maybe there's never been that that time in your life, that moment in your life where you've made the decision. Now, I'm not trusting in myself anymore and my intellect and my achievement and my good works and my character, but I'm going to place my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross. When his body was broken and his blood was poured out so that I could be made whole, so that I could be healed, so that I could be forgiven. And if you've never made that decision before, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you, I want to give you that opportunity tonight. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I I just want to speak to you for a moment, those of you who, who would say, look, I've, I've never made that decision, I've never placed my, my faith in Jesus. And if tonight your desire is to transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus and what he did on the cross, I'm just gonna invite you to pray this prayer after me in your heart, to call out to God, to ask him to save you, to, 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 to place your faith in him. It's a simple prayer. And just says this, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. God, I know there's nothing I can do to save myself. And tonight, I place my faith and trust in you and what you did for me on the cross. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life I ask you to change me and I thank you for your gift of life and the forgiveness through the cross. And tonight, if, if, if that is where God is leading you to, to, to call out to him, to place your trust in him for the first time, now I, I don't want you to leave tonight without sharing that with with me or Morgan or John or one of your leaders, we just want to celebrate with you because it is the greatest decision that you could ever make to place your trust in what Jesus did on the cross so that you can have forgiveness and be made whole and made right with God. God, we would love you. God, we thank you for taking on the, the punishment that we deserve for being broken and poured out for forgiveness of our sins, God, so that we could have a relationship with you. I pray for any student tonight, God, that you're working on their heart, you're calling them and drawing them to yourself, Lord, that they would respond in faith and obedience to you tonight. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray and that we ask this. Amen.